Welcome back, everybody. This is Eric and Matt, and this is Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit, your beacon of freedom and the American way of life. Tune in every Friday for a new episode as we dive into the world of liberty and what makes our country great. All right, my friends, welcome back. This is Eric and Matt here with Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit. Oh, yeah. And we're into another podcast this week. Happy Friday for all of you. And this one's going to dive into a very interesting rabbit hole, and I hope you're ready. I hope you're ready because... (laughs) Hold on to your potatoes. Hold on to your potatoes because we're going to be diving into the war on drugs and getting into some really interesting talking points, and I hope that you'll join us for this one. Hold on. This one's a doozy. So there's... You know, some pretty interesting things that go into this whole war on drugs and why it was started. And we look at, and again, we're kind of continuing our battle for the human mind. That's what this really comes down to, right, is uh, the establishment controlling people's thoughts, their actions. And there's a ton of things that go into this, and we are going to certainly get into it. Um, I guess it's probably worthy point to get into what is the war on drugs? Why does it exist? And who coined the the term? And primarily, we're we're focused on U.S. politics, but the whole idea of having a war on drugs is somewhat of a global campaign and a global idea. But we're going to primarily focus on uh, how it affects um, the U.S. market and uh, U.S. laws and uh, U.S. politics. So let's get into this. And for a lot of the definitions that we're giving, you know, we are prefer, uh, referring, I'm sorry, to Wikipedia just because the definitions are clear and concise. And I'm going to try to uh, uh, just sort of lightly paraphrase what's going on here. Okay. So to, to intro us here, uh, the war on drugs is a global campaign led by uh, the U.S. federal government on drug prohibition, military aid, military intervention with the aim of reducing the illegal drug trade in the United States. Now, I would interject there to say that big pharmaceutical companies have a lot to do with the war on drugs uh, because there are many remedies that are available that are natural and holistic um, remedies that you know they may not like because it doesn't require a prescription or because it's unlawful they want to keep it unlawful under the guise of keeping you from achieving a remedy that's safe well they can't patent it and so, natural yes like they they can't patent it so they can't make money off of it um, yes the government can tax it but you know the tax revenues are only only go so far but ultimately what it comes down to is the pharmaceutical companies not being able to patent anything about um, these types of drugs in, in, a, in a meaningful way where they can actually make as much money from it as possible. They're not able to extrapolate every single penny that comes in. Um, and, you know, I think this is a great conversation. I'm excited because I, the way that I feel about it is I lean heavily in the libertarian side of that is most of it is a victimless crime a lot of it is if you feel like you want to go smoke some weed then smoke some weed if you want to go tear up your body then tear up your body that is your decision now there are ramifications for that obviously uh if you start doing like you know if you think about prohibition with drinking you know obviously you can drink but you can't drink and drive same thing with drugs you can smoke weed Please don't smoke weed and drive. Yeah, I think that it's impossible to make this particular podcast without interjecting some form of uh, uh, individual bias in there. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I will just sort of begin this podcast before we get too deep in here by mentioning that I am a supporter of federal legalization of marijuana. Uh, I think that it's a harmless thing. Now, I'm also one of the types of people that I view it as uh, very much along the air of personal responsibility. Yes. Um, you know, you should be responsible to know, you know, how to hold your, well, I know you, you, you say people, you know, how to hold your alcohol, but in this case, how to hold your pot or whatever. I mean, you know what your limits are, and I know that, you know, people very much demand a individual responsibility that revolves around what they do with their bodies and what they do in their environment, right? And I don't think there should be much of a distinction between drinking a beer, for instance, and then knowing if you're okay to drive versus, 
you know, consuming a cannabis product and then knowing, all right, am I okay to perform whatever aspect within society without being a danger in anyone? When we start comparing alcohol to something like cannabis, um, it, it quickly, you start to see the amount of dangers. I mean, people do a lot of irate, random things when they're drunk versus when someone's high, they act totally passive they act hungry and they act, yeah i mean yeah the only thing they might attack is a, you know, a bag of chips or bag something. of cookies or something anyway i digress let's talk about the war on drugs a little bit so but just know going into this that we are pro uh legalizing cannabis uh matt and i are both veterans we both support uh the legalization of cannabis um not so. only not only recreationally but also medically there have been huge huge steps in uh, treating PTSD both with cannabis and, and other um what are considered illegal drugs like MDMA um used as a more of a party drug but there originally it was a therapeutic therapy type of drug and there's been huge gains in that uh, arena of using those to treat severe PTSD. And, you know, as veterans, um, it's an important aspect. We lose a lot of veterans to uh, suicide every day. And anything that can help keep that from happening, I'm in favor for. So, no, I'm not in favor of smoking uh, a joint or a blunt or a bowl and jumping in your car and, you know, going and throughout your merry day. But if you're just doing it, you know, in your home or at your friend's house and you have no plans on going out, you're just trying to have a good time, victimless crime. Uh, I think we can certainly agree that marijuana is very much a victimless crime. I mean, in terms of just consuming it on your property, you're sitting on your porch hanging out. It's a Friday night. You've had a long week. Yeah, you want to relax and relieve some stress. I don't see anything wrong with that. I never have. Um, so anyway, uh, I am not a user of it, uh, nor you, but I do support those that wish to use it. I support your right to do what you want. I agree. All right, so let's dive into this a little bit. Um, we'll get back to the war on drugs. So the term was popularized by the media shortly after a press conference given on June 18, 1971, by President Richard Nixon, the day after publication of a special message from President Nixon to Congress on drug on the I'm sorry on the drug abuse prevention and control, during which he declared drug abuse quote public enemy number one unquote. I am not a crook. That message to the Congress included text about. Uh, devoting more federal resources to the prevention of new addicts uh, and the rehabilitation of those who were addicted. But that part did not receive the same public attention as the term war on drugs. Mm. However, two years prior to this, Nixon had formally declared a war on drugs that would be directed towards eradication, uh, interdiction, and incarceration. Today, the Drug Policy Alliance, which advocates for an end to the war on drugs estimates that the U.S. government spends fifty-one billion dollars annually on these initiatives. So we see that from seventy-one till now. I mean, you're coming right out of the hippie era, the late '60s, the Vietnam War. So many things going on, and this this entire counterculture that is existing in our country at this time, right? Politically, there's a lot of things going on. And there's a lot of people consuming uh, LSD, cannabis, various forms of uh, drugs, and sort of this, um, not to say that I necessarily agree with the hippie culture, but when you look at this uh, sort of freedom, uh, free, freeing your mind and having this expanded horizon for consciousness and perception and a general view of the world that occurred with that hippie movement as a result primarily of LSD. And we'll get into LSD a little bit here late, later. Uh, I will say that uh, it is a fascinating science, hallucinogens, and we're going to get into that. And I don't want anyone uh, listening to our podcast thinking that you know we're taking hits of LSD and smoking marijuana before we make these podcasts. We're simply presenting this information in a way uh, that shows our views on the subject and gives you a bit of an idea about the minutia behind these particular uh, types of ideas. So uh, it's interesting to see why the war on drugs was originally created. Again, in our previous podcast, we mentioned PSYOPs, false flags, Project 
Mockingbird and all of these random things like the CIA getting into um, these programs where they're trying to change hearts and minds and they're trying to influence popular culture, movies, all of these things that goes into why the government gets involved in these programs. All right, so why have the war on drugs? It's not the war on drugs. It's the war on what those drugs do to change culture and change the way people view the environment around them. And the hippie culture was creating a very dangerous presence for them, creating anti-war sentiments, creating this summer of love and all of these things. So they viewed that as a threat, okay, to, you know, the way that they view the world and the way that they want the world to go. They didn't want people being pacified. They didn't want people being happy and and I guess um, you would call it a blissful ignorance. They didn't want people having this blissful ignorance that would come from being constantly high on LSD and, and marijuana and having you know promiscuous sex with random people, right? So they didn't want that freedom. They wanted people to have a little bit more of a regimented and traditional conservative approach to the way that they live their everyday lives, to have a different form of principles, morals, and values. So the war on drugs was not only a literal war on the drugs that caused that, it was it was a war on the things that the drugs were causing society to come into as an entire whole, right? And that was a sort of a new woke movement. Like, we look at these folks now that are woke, right? It's that type of thing. People were woke in a very different way that the government didn't like. They didn't support it. They couldn't control it. Therefore, they had to find a reason to directly attack the substances which provided that counterculture, their movement. Which also harkens to the do as I say, not as I do to the current day. Because even back in the 70s, when they initiated in 1971, when they initiated this war on drugs, in the 70s is when they actually started up uh, MK Ultra, which was where prostitutes would dose unsuspecting Johns with LSD um, to do some crazy mind control setup. So yes, in the vein of, oh, they're worried about this new movement of, of promiscuity and uh, all this stuff, they're using those same tactics in the government. So if you look back, 1971, they started the war on drugs. They set a schedule of different drugs. So they took all the different drugs and they put them in schedules or classifications. Um, and yes, there, we're going to be talking about quite a few LSD, um, uh, MDMA, and cannabis, weed. Um, they actually lumped weed or cannabis into a schedule one, which is a pretty, uh, pretty harsh schedule considering it's written with heroin. Um, and I, and to this day in 2021, cannabis is still a schedule one drug. So it's still considered the same level of danger to the, the body as heroin, which is just absolutely ludicrous and peyote, which is something that the Native Americans have been using ever since they've existed. So they took something that is a traditional aspect of their life. Imagine that. You are a Native American, you've lived here your entire life, and now you have somebody saying, well, this sacred plant, peyote, is now a Schedule One drug on par with meth, methamphetamine, and LSD, and MDMA. It's absolutely crazy. It's weird to think that a lot of the prohibitions that have existed against, you know, natural remedies, a lot of them have been signed into law and co-sponsored and initially uh, put into motion by Democrats. Mm. That's the weirdest thing about it. Not to get political here, because I, I, I don't really want this video, or I'm sorry, not video, but this podcast to be about that. Sorry, I'm still in YouTube mode, guys. I I, I readily go in between <laughs> uh, making YouTube videos as well as podcasts, so I apologize for that. But um, it's a really interesting thing. It, it's like when you look at something as harmless as hemp, the hemp industry was purposely crippled like back in 37 with the marijuana uh, tax act of 37. Uh, that was a bill that was signed into law by Franklin Roosevelt. 
And it was introduced into the House by Robert Dalton, a Democrat out of New York, May 11th of 1937. When we look at that particular act and, and other things that would obviously come to follow, even back then they realized that the hemp industry was big danger for them. They really wanted to gut and cripple the hemp industry, it which was is a- sad. Like, I mean, the Constitution was written on hemp paper. Yeah, and that's the reason they they were fighting it so hard is because the owners of paper mills, they were getting infringed upon by a a better product, a hemp product. Um, Easier to grow. It was definitely easier to grow than cotton. It doesn't take nearly as much water. It doesn't Mm -hmm. take – it's it's much more forgiving in the environment that we're growing um, hemp is a miracle product. It is. It will grow. And it, it can be used to make a variety of different things. You can make textiles. Uh, there's tons of products. We use hemp shirts at, at the shop. You know, we have customers that come in and they want uh, natural hemp shirts. They do sell them. Guys, they are extremely soft. Um, it's almost like a tri-blend. It's just a very, very, very soft material. Um, you know, if they are. it's a little bit more expensive because, again, that industry got squashed and stepped on at when it was in its infancy. Um, so the shirts do have a tendency or that material, the raw material cost is um, higher than cotton. But yeah, it's a great shirt. I mean, I, I mean, what can I say? It's really random to think, you know, like um, I'm sure you guys remember some of you who were uh, born and came up as young adults in the 80s such as me. I'm giving away my age a little bit. It's okay. <laughs> as am I. Yeah. Uh, but we remember in school the D.A.R.E. program, you know, and the oh, drug yeah. programs and stuff. So, McGruff. Yeah. Mm. McGruff. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So they were super big on trying to sell this idea that drug users were bad people and that anyone who consumed any drug that wasn't approved by them. See, it wasn't the, you know, the pharmaceutical companies and all the stuff they're pushing. Oh, that's completely fine. You go to a doctor, you get a prescription for this. That's yes. fine. You go through a medical process and you get reviewed. And of course, the doctor makes sure, oh, you can you can be prescribed this. Oh, well, that's not so. So what's the difference between a jug, drug that's prescribed and one that you use? So they were creating this environment where they wanted young adults such as or young kids such as myself to view drug users with a very, very negative connotation. And a lot of that has um, had a lot of difficulty in completely going away. All right, so the the reality that we live under now is that a lot of folks my age do view drug use in a very negative connotation because of that upbringing and sort of that, um, I guess you call it that indoctrination that exists in the school systems and, uh, and everything. So I think it's worth mentioning that drugs have, you know, ruined a lot of lives and there are a lot of drugs out there that certainly can be taken as a gateway type of thing where the base layer drug would be very harmless and then you go oh i want to try the harder thing and then i want to do that this thing or that thing or your buddies dare you oh i bet you won't try this and then you know yes there are many drugs uh, that are very addictive and everything like that but i think in the context of today's podcast we want to stick with some of the scientifically proven substances that really do not belong on the Schedule One substance list. Now, when we look at this modern prohibition in terms of the war on drugs as it was originally created versus now, right? Now we see this strange resurgence, right? It's almost like a prohibition of 2020, right? You look at the old school prohibition of alcohol, and there was some mass noncompliance. There were speakeasies. There were federal agents going in and getting drunk because they wanted yep, drink too. Yep, yep, Right. So you had this mass noncompliance, and what did it do? It changed hearts and minds, and eventually those loudmouths that caused prohibition to come into place in the first place were able to get it overturned just from mass unpopularity of prohibition, right? You had policemen, federal law enforcement agents, firemen, uh, (laughs) medics, doesn't matter, anyone that worked in the government. Of course, they were going to the speakeasies, knock softly, talk softly, go in, have a drink, and it was just a low-key sort of thing. That's how marijuana is treated now, is it's like in certain cities, like for instance in Atlanta, you know, here in Georgia, up in Atlanta, most marijuana possession under a certain amount is decriminalized. Yeah, it is. It, no, it is decriminalized. Everything under an ounce. Um, so it, 
I think they did a great service doing that. I think it's one step uh, in the right direction. But I'll I'll tell you the issue with prohibition. Um, then the reason that it was able to get overturned was because you had everybody kind of that mass non-compliance, like you said. It was your police officers and your firemen and your clergymen and everybody saying, you know what, this is not this is not good. This is not normal. We're just we're just going to continue as business as usual and and live life. And at that point, it almost became a disservice because now you have people making unsafe alcohol. Like that was the kind of like that tipping point where you had people making booze in their bathroom in their in their in their bathtub and it was becoming unsafe and that is what i guess well the government sure surely realizes it but that's the kind of that that secondary market that they create Mm -hmm. it's like well hey we're gonna make this illegal and now you just have like everybody mass non-compliance but now you have an unsafe situation yeah, it's it's at what point do you establish this very very deadly series of diminishing returns where all right, you've made this thing illegal. All right, hurrah. Now you've you've won this moral high ground. On, That's exactly on, it, a moral high right, ground. It's only a moral high ground, but then you've got guys making stuff in their in their bathtubs and selling, you know, cutting it with no telling what. Mm-hmm. People are going blind, getting sick, dying. <laughs> I did hear you about know, that. And that's a very dangerous system. So if you, as Joe Blow government, or let's just say some bureaucrat in Washington who has the responsibility, at least the perceived responsibility, of trying to protect the citizenry at large, okay, if you're that person, then you see people start dying as a result of your legislation. It's like, well, all right, what's what's better, to just let people drink and then punish the people that act up and do stupid things? Or do we punish everyone and then people start drinking this bathtub hooch and start dying as a result? I think the writing was on the wall. They started to see that people got really good at making their own hooch. And we're talking good stuff. We're not talking just the rot gut, rat poison, you know, stuff that kills you. We're talking the people that were actually succeeding in this black market of producing alcohol. Yeah, bootleggers, man. Oh, yes. So, uh, all right. I'd, I'd like to just quickly give a shout out to my ancestors. <laughs> okay, so my people were originally from Louisville, Kentucky. My family. And they were moonshiners back in the day. So they got there. Well, we came here around 1810. So our family's been here since 1810. And when, especially during the Prohibition era, I mean, my, my folks were Kentucky rednecks in the middle of nowhere. And when Prohibition was around, they uh, amassed considerable amount of wealth uh, running alcohol. So that's uh, my my people directly come from that vein of being the people that are like, you know what, screw this. These folks don't want to legalize it. We're going to make money on it one way or the other. So that was my ancestors in Louisville, Kentucky, who ran moonshine, raced horses. Those were my people. Yeah, well, you had a whole... um you had a whole industry built out of bootlegging, which was NASCAR. I mean, that's the American race series is, was NASCAR was originally bootleggers that got together to see who was the best bootlegger. It's like, so it's like, who's, who's the fastest bootlegger? Who could, who could drive the fastest bootlegging car? Yep. And then you had a whole TV series called the Dukes of Hazard based on bootlegging i mean it's this it's almost like a a cottage industry in and of itself and somehow in uh you know 1971 oh i'm not a crook richard nixon decided to put his foot on things and change the change the american landscape but richard nixon isn't the president that's synonymous with the war on drugs and who would that be it would be old Ronnie Reagan. Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan and his wife are the faces that you normally associate with the war on drugs because they both, and I'm going to say they were in collaboration, even though it was mainly his wife, um, that created the D.A.R.E. program. So, like, that's when that whole, like, D.A.R.E., my brain, this is my brain, this is my brain on drugs, like the whole scrambled egg thing. So... That is the like that is who you think of uh, with the Warrenters, mainly because Richard Nixon wasn't in office 
that long because of the whole uh, Watergate uh, issue that kind of got overshadowed. So he started it, but the face of the movement was was the Reagans. You know, Reagan was larger than life, though. He was a very charismatic He was guy. a movie star. Yeah, he was a movie star, yeah. so he was a very charismatic guy. So we'll kind of... All right, I've got several pages pulled up. We're going to sort of dive into this minutia a little bit here, and I love this so much. I, I love talking about this stuff. I am not a user of drugs, okay? But I've always been fascinated with the science that goes into uh, our mental state, our brains, our untapped mental faculties, you know, how intelligent and brilliant the human brain is really capable of, of bringing into light. I mean, we have such an untapped potential, and I've always been fascinated with, like, LSD and different types of hallucinogens and the spiritual reference of those hallucinogens uh, in terms of how our ancestors and Native Americans and indigenous cultures all over the world have used these substances to um, approach a very spiritual realm. And I've always had a dire fascination in the science of it. So, Well, I- before you get into it, the way that you just described that we are not users of drugs, but the I guess the way that I would describe that is the way is the Voltaire quote. So I may not agree with what you have to say, but I will fight vehemently for your right to say it. So I I may not agree with using drugs, but I will always fight for your right to do so because that is your choice. I agree, and I, I think that you know the use of various substances should certainly be a choice, but I'm also of the vein of existence that I believe that if you are willing to take on something like that and put it in your body, you should also be willing to accept the consequences of what happens if you hurt another person while you're right. in the influence of those substances. I think as long as we as a society can accept the fact that, you know, there is a series of diminishing returns that results, right? There's an entire paradigm that exists of the stress of mankind, all right? Stress causes us to take on certain aspects of our behavior. And when we get stressed out, we do certain things, and some of those things can be violent. So it's like, how do you weigh out? you know, each end of that scale in terms of which direction it can tip, right? So do you want your society walking around being stressed out and angry all the time? Or do you want people to be relaxed and maybe a little more passive in a few uh, various uh, aspects? Only when they're on, you know, cannabis or something like that. And do you want to accept the fact that maybe those people will be a little bit less violent? Uh, They won't go out and do stupid things. They won't hurt people around them. So it's like, where do you draw that paradigm between you know, what some would view as a moral debauchery, let's just say drug use, and the benefits of drugs, which they may ignore those benefits, but it doesn't mean those benefits don't exist. So let's dive into a little bit here. I'd like to mention here, um, I'm, I'm on Wikipedia again, but the Love spiritual block. All right, so let's talk about the spiritual use of cannabis. All right, this goes right back into what I was talking about. And I'll just read pretty much right from the wiki article because uh, I think it may give you a little bit of uh, insight. Okay. Uh, Cannabis has held sacred status in several religions and has served uh, as a anthologian, a chemical substance used in religious, shamanic, and spiritual contexts. In the Indian subcontinent, such as the Vedic period, Uh, dating back to approximately 1500 B.C., but perhaps as far back as 2000 B.C., 2000 years before Christ. Uh, There are several references in Greek mythology to a powerful drug that eliminated anguish and sorrow. That's right. Uh, Herodotus wrote that early ceremonial practices by the, oh my gosh, I'm not going to try to pronounce this, the Scythians? Uh, thought to have occurred from the 5th to 2nd century B.C. In modern culture, the spiritual use of cannabis has been spread by the disciples of the Rastafari movement who used cannabis as a sacrament and as an aid to meditation. 
The earliest known reports regarding to the sacred status of cannabis in the Indian subcontinent come from the uh, Atharva Veda. Uh, I know I'm not pronouncing these words properly, but I apologize. I'm a redneck from Georgia. Is estimated to have composed somewhere around the 1400 BC. So, again, you see this spiritual connection that people get from the use of these things. Something that grows out of the ground. Something that's completely harmless. Something that has no addictive properties, right? It'd be one thing if a user of cannabis, you know, used it and then was super addicted to it, had to have more, um, had to constantly chase some random way to achieve that feeling that they get out of it. But, you know, it... It's very strange. Cannabis seems that for many people, it's it's a god plant that that achieves this peace, this inner peace, this religious experience that they develop from it. And again, I hope that our listeners will understand. I'm not I'm not telling young folks to go out and use it. I'm not saying that people should use it. I'm just saying we have to look at the total package that comes along with something. Right? There are negative consequences to every action. But I think that this, and this point in history, that cannabis has been vetted to the point now where I think it's quite clear that it needs to be removed as a Schedule One drug. Uh, federally, they need to legalize it. It has many medical uses. There are spiritual uses that help many, many people in various spiritual uh, means, as we described earlier. But you know. It helps with pain. It helps with nerves. It helps with stress, inflammation. So it, it, it used to anxiety, treat glycoma, yeah, cancer glaucoma. patients. Yep. I mean, there are so many things. So, at a minimum, marijuana is totally like on the lower end of the totem pole of, of not even being remotely as dangerous as alcohol. Well, even with um, with cannabis, you there are stories with the spiritual aspect of. So when you're in a Catholic mass and you have the the priest coming by and he's swinging that kind of uh, urn with the smoke coming out of it. Um, originally, there are stories that that was actually cannabis, and there's kind of like ca- this cannabis uh, being burned inside of the the church and the mass is all inhaling this. Um, and even, when you even dig even deeper, and this is something that's you know well documented as far as you know different um, you know aspects of how religion started with the, with Christianity. I don't I can't speak on you know any other religion, but with Christianity in general, you might hear that like you know DMT was a big aspect of it. With you know when you start looking in the Bible and you look at all these stories about oh the the burning bush was talking to me, and you hear all these crazy stories that you know obviously we know are supposed to be um, not taken literally because a bush cannot talk to you, a bush cannot turn into fire and talk to you, but it's supposed to emulate. Um, some form of story that happens so you can kind of digest that and and make it palatable. These are all things that, you know, could have been done by nature through natural DMTs and naturally occurring hallucinogenic. Um, And there are stories and written stories that this could have happened. You know, and it's really random to think about. It's like, all right, this inspiration that comes in so many different forms, right? How do you know that that inspiration didn't come from some exterior force that you didn't even know? It may not have been religious. Science can explain it. And in this case, DMT being a naturally occurring compound that occurs in many plants. Yep. So it's really interesting when you see that paradigm, right? Um, For instance, a really good example is the religious scientific connotation that goes into the Salem witch trials, right? You had these people who were sick uh, from bread that was made from ergot. Uh, it, ergot, was made from, yep. it was made from wheat that was that was contaminated with ergot fungus, which has been shown to to cause hallucinogenic uh, visions, episodes, and, and yes, stuff and like episodes, that. Yep. and also moments of uh, clairvoyance and odd things to happen with the mental psyche. Right. So when you look at the ergot fungus that occurred in the wheat they used to make the bread. People go, oh, you're a witch, and then burn someone at the stake, you know. And, and if then they don't burn, they're not a witch. Right, and then come <laughs> up with all of these random, uh, you know, standards that they use yeah. to determine if someone's a witch or not. Well, if I throw you in the water and you float, <laughs> no. you're not a witch. It's, it's so like, crazy. Well, what? <laughs> 
And there's a lot of people, that innocent people, innocent women, that were killed in Salem, the witch trials, just because someone had this deep religious duty that they felt. And they didn't understand the science behind why those people were acting the way they were. Yeah. And, you know, when you look all the way back, it's so crazy to think that all of these things happen by accident, like naturally occurring accidents, ergot fungus, DMT happens through natural fermentation of like, you know, natural substances, wheat, um, cactus, cactus, peyote, all kind of, you know, hemp, cannabis, all of this stuff can, can affect that. And then you move all the way today where you had reefer madness in the, uh, in the sixties and fifties where they're like, Oh, it's, it's going to drive you mad when we all know that the original reason for that was because they didn't want hemp production to compete with paper mills because that's where their money was at. All right, so mentioning the hippie movement, and I know earlier we mentioned the counterculture created by cannabis and by LSD. Let's talk about LSD a little bit. All right, so this is an extremely fascinating substance. Very fascinating. You have no idea how much it fascinates me. Because the human psyche and the way that we view ourselves, our egos that we have. I mean, everything that goes into the human psyche, we cannot even begin to understand how balanced it is and what it really is. It's like, what makes us who we are? Why do we think the way we do? Why do we experience love the way we do? Why do we look at, why do we achieve all of this religious ideas right you know so there's all these things that make up who we are and lsd is such a strange drug because it really reprograms you in a way so we're going to dive into this and there's some really interesting talking points about this if you'll give me a bit of your time i think you'll really enjoy it okay so uh, we're going to talk about so when you look at dmt and you look at like uh, things like shrooms or other naturally occurring things in nature that call you know ergot fungus all these things where people could just by chance consume this and not know they were consuming it and then they see what they view as some whole religious experience that just takes them into this different way of thinking yep a different way of looking at the world a different perception right LSD was the first drug to sort of manufacture that all right, so now we're talking about a drug that was actually synthesized and that produces these semi-religious uh, views that come from some of these you know, types of drug taking, right? It's really, really, really random. Uh, I want to talk about how it was created because it's, it's a very, very interesting so with, science. with LSD, it's very interesting because it is a 100% synthetic compound. It is not, there is nothing natural about that particular compound. So for it to do the things that it does is astounding. Um, and you're absolutely right. It reprograms the way that you look at life. It's very similar to like, uh, you'll hear people that have like a DMT experience. It's something about hallucination, something about a hallucinogenic experience um, that really makes you open your eyes and makes you look at things completely different. Well, you know, when you think about religious situations such as church and people start talking in tongues, Mm -hmm. so it's very, very similar, right? You know, someone who is just completely enamored and captured by the moment. Anyway, I would like to get into the history of this because it's it's very interesting. Let's do it. If those of you that don't know, and, and again, I don't use LSD, I don't use DMT, I don't use mushrooms. Of course, I've never consumed ergot fungus. However, I want you to remember this ergot term and the Salem Witch Trials. We're going to get into this. Okay, you ready? This Let's is do so it. interesting. Rabbit hole. All right. And I'm just going to read right off Wiki because this is a perfect explanation, way better than what I could even come up with. LSD was first synthesized on November 16th, 1938 by Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman at the Sandoz Laboratories in Basel, Switzerland, as part of a large research program you ready? Searching for medically useful ergot, ergot alkanoid derivatives. Mm-hmm. 
here we are getting back to the Salem witch trials. That's why LSD even came to exist is by them trying to find a way to harness that. They knew that the ergot fungus in the wheat is what caused them to have the issue. They were trying to sort of harness that. Uh, LSD's um, psychedelic properties were discovered five years later when Hoffman himself accidentally ingested (laughs) an unknown quantity of the chemical. The first intentional ingestion of LSD occurred on April 19th, 1943, when Hoffman ingested uh, 250 micrograms of LSD. He said this would be a threshold dose based on the dosages of other ergot alkaloids. Hoffman found that the effects to be oh, I'm sorry, Hoffman found the effects to be much stronger than he anticipated. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, I recall a, a, a story of him riding his bicycle home and thinking that the devil was chasing him. This is or hilarious. All right, so Sandoz Laboratories uh, introduced LST as a psychiatric drug in 1947 and marketed LST as a psychiatric uh, pan- panacea. Pan- I can't say that word. I'm so sorry. Hailing it as a cure for everything from schizophrenia to criminal behavior to sexual perversions and alcoholism. Uh, the abbreviation LSD is from the German. Oh boy, uh, it is. Uh, let's see, LSD stands for lysergic acid di- diethylamide. Nice try. Anyway, Good I'm job. Not, I'm not going to try. I'm just going to completely pretend that I didn't botch that. <laughs> anyway, the point LSD. is. So he created this substance, and it wasn't until considerably later. Now, there are training films of British commandos uh, being given a dose of LSD. So, of course, the military initially uh, looked at the CIA and obviously all the alphabet agencies looked at LSD as a potential weapon uh, for mind control, uh, for being able to control a certain populace. There's videos of the British being subjected to, uh, you know, consuming LSD and then uh, going out and trying to perform maneuvers, military maneuvers and military operations. I'd pay money to to watch film of that. It's on YouTube. You (laughs) can totally watch it. I want to watch that. And being, and and of course, not even knowing what the heck's going on. They're laughing. They, They have no interest in the military aspects of it. So, you know, when you look at it, you know, the military, of course, viewed LSD as a potential drug to use against, you know, opposing armies uh, because it does tend to, at least in the in context of this military operation the British were doing, make people relatively passive, mm-hmm. pacifist. Or extremely scared. I could I could totally see them dosing a POW with that, with high, with someone with a lot of intelligence value, dosing them with a high amount of LSD. And he would probably just tell them everything that they want to know. I mean, LSD reacts differently with different people based on the dosage that you take. So you have some people that will take it and they'll get what they call just a body high. So like, oh, yeah, I just I feel kind of high. My body's kind of feeling good. And then you have like full on hallucinations when you take a little bit more where you do see hallucinations so i could only imagine that if you crank that up to like 11 and you're hitting somebody with that and then you're asking them a whole bunch of questions then they're going to tell you whatever you want to know i think it's absolutely admirable and hilarious that he dosed himself to see what those uh see how that reaction was versus dosing some unsuspecting person however they did the CIA did do that with uh, MK Ultra again. That's exactly what they did. They would dose them unsuspectingly, and Charles Manson. They uh, basically would provide him with an unlimited. Nobody ever asks how he got so much acid. Where did this guy get all this acid from? So that's where it came from. I think that there's certainly uh, you know a type of situation where. Anytime the government or the establishment, the deep state, whatever, Big Brother, uh, has an opportunity, okay, to weaponize something or see the value in something or the, 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 the merits and flaws of a certain situation, they're going to completely study the absolute uh, limits that it has available to it. And the fact that LSD is a Schedule One drug, 
okay, should everyone consume LSD or try it? Maybe not. I mean, LSD really does sort of um, amplify the mental status of the given person. If you're really happy, you're probably going to be extra happy. If you're really sad, uh, it's going to amplify that. You're, you're going to have a trip that really gets you into the sadness zone, right? If you're open-minded and you're extremely spiritual, then you can certainly approach, um, from what I've been told, some areas that you know lead to the ethereal for many people and, and, and allow them sort of a come to Jesus or come to God or come to religion or whatever your religion is, that kind of come to Jesus moment for you. So it's really fascinating when you look at it all. So it was used for therapy um, for a very long time. They would use that for that very reason. If you're very distraught about losing a loved one or you're very distraught about something they would you would go in you'd be able to go in you'd have a therapy session they would give you your your dose of lsd and it would provide you with that experience of maybe you are able to uh quote air quote i'm using air quotes here communicate with the person that you lost to get that that sense of closure or whatnot or maybe yeah just as a coping mechanism yeah just being able to get that get that you know People to associate a calamity in a a negative situation in their life with some form of a religious, um, you know, coming to terms, you know, Mm -hmm. and and that's certainly a thing. And LSD is a very fascinating science. It's a very fascinating drug, and it's not something I've ever used. And uh, as far as I know, I'll never use it. But it certainly does make you think about uh, the human psyche, about who we are, what we think. And um, I'd like to sort of change gears a little bit. So I guess the ultimate question we've posed in this podcast is, is the war on drugs even a thing anymore? Is there such a mass noncompliance that, you know, this $56 billion or whatever it is we're spending every year is the United States government spending of our tax dollars? Isn't it worth it? I mean, what are, what are we really gaining by fighting it so hard? I mean, I guess that's the giant question, you know. Again, we look into Assange and Snowden and all the work with WikiLinks and all of this information that's been shared. You look at people like Assange. And, um, you know, Julian really has stuck his neck out there. When you look at the amount of censorship and the amount of government interaction that has occurred for things like the Silk Road and the Dark Web, Bitcoin, I mean, cryptocurrency, so... Now you're creating this environment, or at least existing within this environment, where, okay, things are very different now than they were in the 70s and the 60s. When this counterculture was occurring now, people have not only really found a way to get around it, let's just say fiscally, but also culturally found a way to get around it. I mean, there's probably less people now that are really, really super conservative and religious in that aspect of it than there were back in the 50s and 60s. There was a religious connotation that directly related to why the laws were what they were and why they were drafted the way they were. Now, it just seems like even people that are very Christian still understand that people should be able to experience the world in the way they want, and that drug use may not necessarily be a super negative thing when done under the context of uh, being safe and people doing it in a controlled environment and not creating a victim in the process. So you don't see that super, super deep conservative state of mind that comes along from someone who's super religious and is absolutely opposed to any and all drug use under any circumstances. You're not really seeing that anymore. You're seeing the modern Christian environment. is like people are a little bit more open to those things as long as holistically you are still living according to the gospel that's that's taught in the Bible and living by the code that's taught in the Bible. So you see this modern Christianity thing. It's, it's completely different than what existed back in the 50s and 60s when this stuff started to take root and what caused um, you know, the prohibition and the war on drugs to occur in the first place. Well, the, the big issue you run into is that those heavy Christian valued right leaning conservatives, I would say are though are against legalization or decriminalization 
of drugs in a way that almost makes it one-sided. So they're, they are so against it that they themselves don't believe in it. So then they want to force that upon you. Um, and it makes it very difficult to justify that because on one hand, you have a group of people of a side that say, you know what, I don't believe in this, so you shouldn't do it. But that's not your choice, that everybody is free to make their own decisions. Um, but it also makes it very difficult to be on the side of the of big government when you have um, operations like Air America. Air America was um, a CIA operation that ran from 1946 to 1976. And the sole purpose of this uh, airline that was run by the CIA was to shuttle narcotics and drugs from Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia to the U.S., and that is when you really started to see the war on drugs kind of pick up on not just with cannabis and marijuana, but that is when you really started to see the cocaine and crack epidemic hit the U.S. because all of this 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 very large influx of what we would call narcotics um, come into the U.S. So when you start saying, oh, yes, we have cannabis and marijuana and MDMA and LSD, which were mainly localized here to the U.S. and you didn't really have the, the an epidemic, as you would say. Uh, as Eric would say, the only thing you're going to attack is a bag of chips uh, versus uh, a crack et- epidemic where you have um, just highly addictive substances really it was designed to be addictive and to to really go after the the lower poverty level consumer as you would say um it makes it very hard to justify whether and i'm just playing devil's advocate here because we've all we all know that you and i both don't believe that certain drugs should be illegal but then you always have that straw man argument well, what about crack? Well, what about heroin? Well, what about methamphetamines? Like, it makes it very difficult. And, you know, 100% honesty is, um, I don't know how to handle that because I'm looking at it like, yes, I believe in these drugs, but then how do you justify these specific drugs and not argue for other drugs? Yeah, I mean, that's a difficult environment to exist within and to think about i would like to take a little bit of time to talk about the 94 crime bill yes you know right now biden's president as much as i don't agree with it that's the reality he's a career politician what 48 years in at this point yep dude i mean the guy was one of the chief architects of the 94 crime bill the 94 crime bill put a ton of minorities behind bars over victimless crimes, something that shouldn't have been illegal to begin with. $10 bags of weed. Yeah, $10 bag of weed, and you spend years upon years upon years in jail. Yep. What really that proved, in my opinion, this is just me talking here, but that proved that an, a, a, an entire system existed solely for the purpose of incarcerating people and making money off the process in the entire financial uh, and, and sociological and, and, and just the, the, the industrial complex that involved or involved that particular type of enforcement, right? Not so, just people, but guys it, that own the prisons, yeah. guys that, you know, they made money every step of the way down the chain yeah. by incarcerating people over something that should have been illegal in the first place. Well, yeah, not just people, but an overwhelmingly statistical minority group of people. Um, I mean, it's you want to talk about, quote, systematic racism. That's the root of it. I mean, the guy that is our president right now is the architect of systematic, what you would call systematic racism. And he's literally been voted into office. Into office. And then you look at, like, you know, Trump. And the thing is, I know that a lot of people may not necessarily be a big fan of Trump. There are some things about Trump I don't agree with, but overall, I think his policy is pretty solid. When you look at his final days as president, he did pardon many, many uh, minorities. 
that were put in jail for a very long time over substances, over marijuana. And mm-hmm. like something as innocent as pot, and they received some really harsh sentence under the crime bill. So I almost wonder if, yeah, it might have been a little bit of a political token that he played just to appeal to people, but at the same time, it might have been a punch in the face to people like Biden, who were literally the architects of those bills that put those people there in the first place. So And Kamala Harris. Yes. I oh, mean, Kamala, huge, absolutely. Huge role in that. Yeah. Not in the 94 crime bill, but just in general with her position in California, um, lock, like that was the epitome of picking on minorities, being a minority. I mean, I would almost say that's reverse racism. You're self-inflicted racism because you are a person of color incriminating and arresting and incarcerating other people of color based on the color of their skin. I mean, it is overwhelmingly statistically proven that these small amounts of marijuana were uh, charges were aimed at a minor, a specific minority group. And you're on top of that, you're going to incarcerate them for these charges of dime bags, 10 and $20 bags of weed. And then you're going to turn around and have them fight California wildfires and pay them a dollar a day. This is true. Look it up. It happened. You, she paid them. She kept them past the time that they needed to be incarcerated, paid them a dollar, $1 a day and had them out there fighting the California wildfires. Absolutely. It was an, it's an atrocity to the American government. Well, there's a lot of things that the American government have been involved in that we would consider atrocities, but we won't go there on this particular podcast. Uh, we are going to wrap things up. I definitely would like to thank everybody who's listened in. We hope you enjoyed it and that we provoke some thought here on today's podcast. It's very important to us that we try to present these things in a way that's fair and balanced And uh, I am not a user of drugs, but I do understand that there are certain social aspects, religious aspects, uh, medical aspects that certainly benefit from their use. And uh, I would encourage anyone, whether you use drugs or whether you have ever considered it, understand that you are the owner of your actions no matter what substance you are under at any given time, right? So... We are the owners of our actions, always. And just be prepared that if you use a substance, no matter what it is, alcohol or uh, anything, you know, understand that you have to own your actions. And we have to create a society where people are, it's, it's, it's okay for someone to take a risk or to do something as long as you understand that if you do something terrible to someone or if you make a mistake, you're going to suffer the consequences. Just be responsible, guys. I think as long as there's a standard for that, we could see uh, substances such as LSD and possibly, well, definitely cannabis being legalized within our lifetime. I think they should. I think we ought to try it and see how it goes and hold people accountable. If you you know, uh, consume a cannabis product and you get high and go out and get in a wreck and kill someone, well, then you're going to be subject to the same types of uh, you know, regulations or the same types of actions that would occur to someone that was uh, drunk Drink, driving. Yeah, get out, getting out there and drinking and driving. And also uh, MDMA. Guys, they're using MDMA for, for on U.S. troops to help combat uh, PTSD. So there are medical uses for this, and hopefully we can kind of get this put into this civilian, I'm going to say civilian market in quotes, um, but it's coming. And as long as everybody's responsible and, you know, does the right thing and doesn't do anything stupid, um, I think there's a very good chance ev- Every single day, there are more and more states that are decriminalizing it, and decriminalization is the is the first step to legalization. Um, so, you know, if you if that's your thing, and you guys are into um, you know cannabis or MDMA or LSD, then you know again, be responsible, be a good ambassador for it, and uh, you know stay in the fight. And if you have to write your local legislators and do what you need to do, then then that's what you need to do. Absolutely. Hopefully this has been some food for thought for many of you. I hope you'll have a great week and tune in with us every Friday here on Life Leader in the Pursuit. And I hope you have a great week. Uh, We've got many more episodes on the way. We hope you enjoy it. Be sure to like 
and comment. Leave some great comments. That helps us with the search results. Have a great week, and we'll see you next week. Uh, Live in liberty. Be free. Be happy. Take care of the people around you. And we'll see you next Friday. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Pursuit. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. Be sure to leave us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate that. You can support us over on Ballistic Inc. by picking yourself up some merch. And remember, guys, dangerous freedom. Have a good one.